This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Do you ever wonder what therapists talk about over coffee? Well, we're three clinical psychologists. Dr. Diana Hill, Dr. Ray Littlewood, and Dr. Debbie Sorensen, and we'd like to welcome you to Psychologists Off the Clock. In this podcast, you'll get a glimpse into the books we read, the research we think is interesting, and the ideas from psychology that we use to thrive in our own lives. Our webpage is www.offtheclockpsych.com, and there you can find resources we mentioned in this episode, as well as other podcasts we've posted. You can also find us on iTunes, Facebook, and Twitter. Thanks for listening. Hi, Ray. It's good to see you. Hi, Diana. It's good to be with you today. Well, I'm really excited about our topic today. It's something that I've been practicing in my own life and really trying to integrate into my therapy work, which is the concept of self-compassion. And today we're going to talk a bit about what is self-compassion, discuss some of the research behind self-compassion and mental health, even some of the neuroscience of how it may change your brain, and then really give you some practices at home to try that may work on increasing your self-compassion and, and kindness to yourself. And I'm excited to hear about how you've been using this in your own life and, and with your clients as well. Great. That sounds great. Yeah. Good. Well, you know, the, the concept of self-compassion is newer in terms of psychological research. So in terms of clinical psychology, they've been studying meditation since the 70s. And more recently, mindfulness meditation has really been a hot topic. And in about the last 10 or so years, self-compassion as another wing of these contemplative practices has started to show up in psychological research. And it's a little bit different from mindfulness. So mindfulness really focuses on bringing awareness to our present moment experience without judgment. It's mindfulness is all about attention, where you're placing your attention. And self-compassion involves more bringing awareness to the person who's doing the experiencing. So it's looking at sort of how we connect and relate to ourselves in our experience, which also involves a sensitivity to our own suffering. So we can't have compassion without pain. And compassion involves this sensitivity to suffering, but also a deep desire to alleviate that suffering. Mm -hmm which I think is, is really um, relevant to mental health and how we relate with teaching our clients how to, to practice a different way of relating to themselves. Mm-hmm. And often, I think, when we're struggling or we're experiencing something difficult, we, we respond to ourselves with self-criticism or uh, shoulds or tell ourselves to get over it or try harder or there's something wrong with us rather than uh, being able to pause with ourselves, allow ourselves to have a moment of sort of checking in, noticing what we're experiencing, and then being a little bit kinder and gentler. I don't know if you notice this in your practice or with yourself when when people are struggling. Yeah, I often um, begin with mindfulness, um, like we've talked about. And I think that, um, that it's very true that 
when you slow people down to really pay attention to what is going on during the suffering, a lot of it is, I don't want to feel this way. Mm -hmm. I want to get rid of it. Um, and I want to feel better, whatever that means. Um, and so it immediately starts a war with your emotions. And, you know, I think self-compassion, when you slow down and, like you said, really investigate the suffering with interest and care, then um, self-compassion kind of grows on its own, you know, taking, being able to sort of loosen up the space between the suffering and what we think about the suffering. Mm -hmm. And I really like what Christopher Germer, who's a psychologist at Harvard and has written a book on self-compassion, writes about this piece of mindfulness and kindness to ourselves. He says that mindfulness says feel the pain and self-compassion says cherish yourself in the midst of the pain. Mm-hmm. And that, that is exactly what you're talking about, of slowing down to allow, allow some space for the pain or discomfort, but then also cherishing it, cherishing yourself in that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and maybe relating to yourself in the way that you would relate to somebody that you care about, a small child, someone that you love. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Kristen, and, now, yeah, yeah, and I just, and to add to that, I think um, from the therapy relationship, having the therapist respond with compassion is kind of the very first, for some people, the very first time that they really get that kind of like, uh, like kind of in your face reaction of like, this is how it would be different. You mm-hmm. know, I'm, I'm responding to your pain like this with so much concern and care. And, um, you know, that's very different than their experience maybe out in the world. Yeah, I love one of my favorite things. I know we've made some moves in therapy is when a client will come in and say, and I heard your voice in my head when I was doing that difficult thing telling me something different. Yeah. And that's part of that internalizing a different voice. And as a therapist, I guess part of our goal is to to demonstrate that like a kinder voice, a gentler voice, a more compassionate Mm -hmm. voice for people. Mm hmm. So when I when I'm thinking about self-compassion for myself um, as I've been practicing more this summer and taking more workshops and things like that on self-compassion, I thought about this experience that I had this summer where I decided to learn how to surf. It was after my little one, my six-year-old, took a surf camp. And it's pretty phenomenal. They get these little six-year-olds up on surfboards the first day. The kid can barely swim. And he's out there in the ocean. And they hold their boards all the way in. And I grew up in Santa Barbara. I've lived here my whole life. I've never surfed. Wow. I spent 10 years in Colorado, never skied. Oh, dear, Diana. <laughs> I know. So there's a flavor to me of harm avoidance, um, which I've shared. And so I decided that I wanted to try this thing because I wanted it to, one, I wanted to try something hard, but also I wanted to be part of what my son was experiencing. And Kristen Neff talks about, she's a, a psychologist at University of Texas at Austin, who has studied a lot on on self-compassion, and she's talked about three components of self-compassion. The first component being kindness, the second component being mindfulness, and the third component being common humanity. And when I decided to go try surfing, I brought these three components with me. So the first component of kindness was how I spoke to myself while going and doing this hard thing. And I really tried to speak to myself in the same way that I spoke to my son when he when he went and tried surfing, hmm. saying things like, this is really hard. I'm so proud of you. 
you're really courageous in mm-hmm. doing this. I know you're scared. I'm with you. Mm-hmm. And as opposed to what my surf instructor told me, which is everyone gets up in their first try. 60-year-olds can do this. 70-year-olds can do this. Four-year-olds can do this. And that actually, when he told me that, it made me more scared yeah. and more like, oh, my gosh, if I don't do this, I'm going to be a failure. Uh-huh. Versus this is hard. This is something that's scary for you. Mm-hmm. So that's the kindness component. And then the second component was mindfulness. And that component was really important when I was out in the water and I was navigating not getting up. <laughs> I did not You were up. the one exception. <laughs> I was the exception. And being able to be mindful of the experience of Surfing is also being in the water and experiencing the waves and getting tumbled and looking out at the shore, the incredible shoreline of Santa Barbara from the water. Mm -hmm. Uh, That's that's also surfing. Mm -hmm. And so when I allowed myself to experience that, being mindful of where I was, Mm -hmm. that also helped with my experience. And then finally, this idea of um, common humanity, which is we're not alone. Everyone struggles. And I also related to thinking about this is something that was really hard for me. And there's a lot of things that I ask my clients to do that maybe for someone else doesn't feel hard, but are really hard for them. So, for example, someone that's had a panic attack and is going, you know, had a panic attack while driving and I'm asking them to go drive again mm-hmm. or somebody that has an eating disorder and I'm asking them to sit down for a meal with their family. Mm-hmm. Those are things that for a lot of us just seem like simple day to day tasks but given the context of what we're struggling with can feel really overwhelming and hard. So I felt a connection to all of us that are doing hard things on a daily basis. And that made me feel not as alone. So those three components of self-compassion really, I think, help clarify for us of how we could relate to ourselves a little bit differently. Mm. And really how you used mindfulness as part of it. I think that that's really key, Mm -hmm. you know, kind of expanding your perspective to include like, all of the different facets of the experience rather than just this like one sort of determinant of whether you stand up on the surfboard or not. Right. Exactly. And that that's rather than getting so fixated on this product, this endpoint, really attending to the process and the process of our experiences are, are just as important, if not more important Mm -hmm. than this endpoint, than, than that picture that you get. Right. That you can post somewhere. Right. And when it's when you're dealing with really clinical levels of like anxiety or depression, it becomes even more important that you that you really build those skills because those both of those experiences of really intense suffering narrow your focus and your experience so much that it's that's what keeps you stuck. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Absolutely. So as I mentioned, Kristen Kristen Neff, who's written a book on self-compassion and done a lot of research on it, has looked at a number of studies of how maybe this quality of relating to ourselves a little bit differently may be helpful. And they found that in general, people that have higher levels of self-compassion have lower levels of anxiety and depression. And they also tend to have higher levels of emotional intelligence, wisdom, social connectedness. Mm -hmm. So again, that piece of not feeling alone in the struggle, which I think is so much part when, when we're alone in our struggle, that's, I think the, the most painful part of it. It's Mm -hmm. the being alone, feeling like people don't understand or don't get it, or I have to face this by myself. And People with higher self-compassion also have uh, are better at perspective taking during difficult times. 
they're also, it's not that they're suppressing their emotions or when you have self-compassion, it's not that you're trying to avoid what you're feeling. Actually, people with higher levels of self-compassion have are less likely to suppress their emotions and are more likely to label their own emotions as valid, which is such an important part of emotional regulation is saying what I'm feeling makes sense and is okay. And being able to label what we're feeling and, and describe it actually helps regulate our, our negative feelings, our difficult feelings. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There was an interesting study where uh, Neff, Kirkpatrick and Rude uh, also looked at self-compassion and she had, they had, undergraduate students give a mock job interview where they were asked to describe the greatest weaknesses. And even though the self-compassionate people used as they used as many negative self-descriptors as those who didn't have as much self-compassion, but they didn't experience the level of anxiety about doing something difficult like that. So it's, it's, you're still experiencing the difficult sensations. It's still, you know, you're talking about, yes, this is something that I struggle with. This is a, a weakness of mine, but it doesn't determine how they feel about their self-worth. Mm-hmm. Uh, they still feel they have a value as a person, even if we, everyone has weaknesses and everyone has strengths. Yeah. So they're able to sort of tolerate kind of that learning curve of like you did with the surfing, like you start off and it's, not as fun when you don't know how to do it, but you tolerate how that how that struggle feels, and then you do the next step, and then you do the next step, and then it eventually gets easier. Mm-hmm. It reminds me also of how we relate to our children when they get injured. And have you ever been on the playground when somebody, like a child, is injured and? a parent picks them up and tells them like, Oh, you're okay. You're fine. Mm. You're that you're okay. Yeah. Statement, which yeah. we think is that you think that's soothing. And so and it can be, and yeah. some, sometimes it can be soothing to say, you're okay. Yeah. Okay. Get back out there. Yeah. Sometimes it can be not so soothing because sometimes we're not okay. Yeah. And that there could be a different approach to, to that injury or that hurt, which is I'm here with you. Tell me about it. Mm-hmm. And that that's enough. Just I'm here with you. Tell me about it. I'm going to stay with you and I'm going to stay close. Mm-hmm. And I'm, that, is, that is different than the just brush it off and get back out there. So I want to talk about our first practice to try around, around this, which comes from compassion-focused therapy. And it's a practice of soothing rhythm breathing. So part of what happens when we're dysregulated and our threat system is activated. So our amygdala is all fired up and we're, we're scared whether we're surfing or we're injured or we're in an interpersonal conflict with somebody is that our whole system moves into this fight flight freeze mode of being. And we can actually do a compassionate exercise of slowing our bodies down by breathing in a soothing way. And it's really simple. It's, it's really just what would be a nourishing breath us, what would be something that would feel really good to breathe into my body mm-hmm. in a soothing breath. And just that pause can help calm our brain down. Mm-hmm. So this comes from Paul Gilbert and his research on self-compassion. And to add to that, there's also an approach where we could maybe even put our hand on our heart or a hand on a part of our body where we notice that difficult sensation. So say there's some anxiety or tightness in your stomach, you can place your hand on your stomach. And there's good research around just bringing warmth and touch to ourselves 
can also regulate our emotions and calm our bodies down in a soothing way. So you can think about, you know, when you're a little kid, your mom putting your her hands against your cheeks mm-hmm. and how that felt like I can just remember that my mom putting her hands right against my cheeks mm-hmm. and how that felt. Mm-hmm. And there, it's like it soothes our system. Those early days when we when we hold our baby's skin to skin yeah. and all the research on skin to skin connection, that's soothing our system, but also soothing theirs. Mm-hmm. And the primary hormone that we see associated with that is oxytocin, which is our our tendon befriend hormone, the one that makes us feel connected and calm. Mm. We can actually generate that for ourselves Mm. by slowing our breath down, doing a soothing rhythm breath and placing our hand on our body. There's been some interesting research, James Cone, who had uh, couples, the married couples, one of the the members of the couple went into an fMRI and they would do a sort of threatening to shock their toes and they Mm. would have they would have that um, one partner hold their their other partner's hand. And just holding your partner's hand helped decrease activation in the areas of your brain that were anticipating the shock. Huh. And that it was meaningful to hold a partner that actually you had a good relationship with because yeah. they also did distressed couples and it yeah. didn't work so well if you're uh, holding something you uh, are struggling with. So hold, holding a hand or, or having that touch is important. Likewise, they did some research at Yale where they had undergraduates hold coffee cups and either the coffee cup was cold or the coffee cup was warm. And if you're holding a warm coffee cup, you're more likely to rate a fictional person with warmer qualities. You're more likely to say, oh, they're generous and caring as opposed to holding a cold coffee cup. So again, bringing that warmth can help regulate our emotions and bringing that warmth to ourselves. Hmm. That makes so much sense. And I didn't know that there was that much sort of neuroscience research behind it, it kind of makes me think about what you said about responding to kids when they hurt themselves on the playground. It's like, what's your automatic thing? You kiss the Mm boo-boo and you give them a hug Mm -hmm. and they're ready to go back. And that's really, it's not just an emotional soothing. It's actually a physiological, like, assist in self-regulation. Um, which makes Absolutely. so much sense, like linking all the way back to, you know, the research on touch and infants and mm-hmm. cool. Some of it is some of it is just our instinct yeah. of how we would how we would treat another person, but for some reason that instinct gets blocked when we're thinking about how to treat ourselves. Yeah, yeah. Like we don't think, oh, I can slow down my breath. Just take this moment, put my hand on my heart, or um, you know, and be with myself. Mm-hmm. That's not our instinct yeah. when we're when we're not do when it we're for others. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Or to or to also, I mean, I think there's an instinct around ourselves, like all of these scare tactics, like that we should try harder, or that if we, you know, scare ourselves enough into doing something, that's going to motivate us to um, change. I know you were talking a little bit about some of those scare tactics and how they didn't they don't work and what you've seen out there. Yeah, yeah. Um Yeah, I think if we just kind of look around in the media, um we know that our biggest public health problems are often behavioral, right? Things like mm-hmm. drinking, um smoking, um obesity and weight loss and um And there's plenty of research now that has looked at, you know, what are effective media campaigns um, for helping people, 
you know, sort of as a society or as a community change some of their health behaviors. And the tactics that we're all familiar with are things like scary pictures of lung cancer, um, the the don't text and drive advertisements that are out now showing like crashed up cars. And there's actually been some research on what effect do those tactics have and what are the alternatives to that. And what's interesting is how much it lines up with what you're talking about with self-compassion, that that social marketing alternatives to those scare tactics are appeals that are based on positive emotions. Um, the idea is to help people associate positive emotions with positive health behaviors rather mm-hmm. than that anxiety, a fear, um, mm-hmm. which tends to, you know, work for a very small, you know, subsection of people. But in general, a lot of what they're showing, it's it's sort of like people already know that smoking leads to cancer. And so mm-hmm. that scare tactic doesn't really sort of penetrate. It's like, or or it reaches the part of the population who's like, yeah, I would never do that. So, right. So it just doesn't, mm-hmm. it doesn't have any positive impact. Um, yeah. And then the other two alternatives to the scare tactics are to create more positive social norms, which really lines up with that um, common humanity idea and self-compassion. Mm-hmm. And then, um, and then also uh, ads that empower people, yeah. sort of take that tact of like, you know, don't let yourself be manipulated by the food industry that's trying to right. sell, you know, whatever the latest fad is on how you can lose weight. Um, right, right. Well, it also makes me think of I when I'm packing my children's lunch for school. And now that we're out of preschool where there's all these rules about what you can and can't have in your lunch, once you go into the real world, <laughs> you know that that kid next to him has a way more interesting lunch than, than ours in terms of the, you know, potentially in terms of the um, marketing uh, things that are in their lunch. Hmm. And when I'm packing my kids' lunch from school for school. I've made this real effort to get like these really sweet little bento boxes and these little like tiny Japanese little forks that have little figures on them that are adorable little animals and cutting up things in a certain way that are fun and engaging Mm -hmm. so that it's so that this strawberry or this grape or this, you know, almond butter, whatever, is something that is fun to eat. Mm -hmm. And and that can be our motivator. So what if we were to do that for ourselves, you know, like have things for ourselves that are positive that we want to go towards that are also life enhancing as opposed to battling whatever processed food is bad. Well, we have this other alternative here that's really fun and mm-hmm. that you would love. Mm-hmm. And that's, I, I think that those tactics are going to motivate people in a different way and make us want to continue the health behaviors as opposed to the tactics of trying to avoid some negative thing that will happen to you in the future if you, you know, text and drive. So yeah, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think it'd be interesting, and I'm sure research is probably going to go in this direction to see, you know, how can we combine the things that we know work? Because there's aspects of gosh, all of these sort of tracking systems for mm-hmm. calories or points or whatever with weight loss. There's a lot of evidence that that stuff works mm-hmm. to a point. And right. what if we were to add, you know, this kind of research to those kinds of behavior changes that we know that we know work. It's kind of a shift well, I, in a mindset. About, yeah, I thought about, you know, putting something on a cigarette package that says, looks like you're stressed. 
go outside, take a breath, right, right, you know, take a walk. Mm -hmm. And that that something like that may motivate, you know, when, when we're going to pull up, you know, a cigarette or something else that may motivate a a positive health behavior, that's more kind of in the self compassion uh, direction. So using that, some of these tools, like you said, tracking, monitoring are all very helpful. How can we integrate these pieces around positive psychology values as part of that so mm-hmm. that it's a little bit more? I mean, even the Apple iWatch now has a whole breathing. Have you have you seen yeah, this, the breathing yeah. thing? Uh-huh. And so, I mean, here we have a cue that goes off to tells us tells us to pause and breathe for a minute mm-hmm. or to get up and walk around. We have, you know, there's things that you can put on your screensaver to get at every hour to tell you that to go up and take a walk and move your body if you're sitting at a desk. Yeah. So those are all kind of definitely related to the self-monitoring um, research, but also tends to be a little bit more in the positive psychology direction. So I want to talk a little bit about another practice that has come up in uh, compassion-focused therapy, which is generating what's called a compassionate advisor. So this is the idea of generating a way of relating to ourselves based on maybe some experiences that you've had that have been positive, other people relating to you, or a spiritual uh, relationship that you may have, and being able to conjure up that imagery when you're having difficulty. So in particular, people that have had a lot of maybe if you've experienced a lot of criticism as a child or you had a traumatic, you know, early childhood or maybe just the parenting style was not very compassionate and warm. It may be that you've internalized some negative self-talk and some self-critical talk. And it's really hard to to kind of get out of that and change it. And sometimes it's helpful to generate, okay, well, if someone were kind to you and were compassionate towards you, what would they say? How, what would their tone of voice be like? Mm-hmm. How would they relate to you in this situation? And you can do, there are uh, different visualization exercises you can do to generate a compassionate advisor. There's a really nice one by Jack Cornfield, who's a, he's a Buddhist teacher and he works a lot with loving kindness and he has one where you do a visualization of yourself at a, in a very difficult time or what's something that you're struggling with and imagine someone coming to the door that encompasses these qualities of forgiveness, kindness, warmth, courage, mm-hmm. um, and comes to you and says, here, let me, let me go in and show you how I would do it. And you allow that that compassion advisor to enter into that difficult situation and just show you. Mm-hmm. And you may find that you really do have a wise self in there that knows how to relate to yourself in a different way. But sometimes it takes a little bit of perspective taking or getting a little bit distance from the situation or putting on a compassionate advisor's, you know, sort of self to get to get that perspective. Mm-hmm. And I know. Ray, we did it. We did a, some exercises around um, this when, in our Kelly Wilson workshop that we did together. And one that really struck me was was your story about about strawberries. Oh yeah. And I still think about it all the time yeah. in terms of passion and advisor. Yeah, it gives me warm feelings just to have you bring it up. Um, I grew up across the street from my grandmother, who was British, and um, as a British woman, she had a very kind of no-nonsense way of carrying out tasks. and um, But there was also a warmth to her. And I always knew that when I went across the street to visit at her house that 
Um, she'd be warm and welcoming. And she wasn't much of a cook, as stereotypically British people <laughs> are not. Um, <laughs> but she um, she always had this way of kind of including me in whatever it was she was doing in the kitchen. And one day we were cutting up strawberries. Mm-hmm. And um, I was, I don't know, I was probably like 10 or something. And I was just cutting off the tops of the strawberries. And she came over and she said, oh, no, honey. You're you're losing so much of the strawberry. Here's how you do it. You have to use the tip of the knife to um, sort of carve out around the top of the stem and um, and get that you know that kind of like the inside part of the stem. So so you lose less of the delicious strawberry. And yeah, and now forevermore, that's how I cut strawberries because it was such mm-hmm. a I don't know, like when you when you use the word compassionate advisor, it's like in that moment she was a compassionate advisor. There wasn't anything critical about it. It was just mm-hmm. a gentle correction mm-hmm. teaching moment. And it seemed like that in this telling that story that there was there was also this quality of going to her house after school and it being like a refuge and a place of, you know, comfort yeah, and yeah. stability and um and that, that she would take the care. Yeah. Around a strawberry for you. And it demonstrates a care that probably she had just for oh, you yeah. in the way that she cut yeah. these strawberries. Yeah. 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 It's sweet. Yeah. There's lots of little memories like that with her. So yeah. She's a good... And this is where the, yeah, the small things I feel like really matter. And the, the small ways in which we also relate to ourselves matter. Mm-hmm. That we could cut our strawberries in that way and sit down to a plate just for us. Yeah. To, you know, to enjoy. Yeah. And that's, that's another way of relating to ourselves right. in, a, in a kind of way. Yeah. And even in that, just not even what we're doing, but how we're doing it, you know, that's like good. whatever it is that is our task that we're doing, how we're, you know, how we're treating ourselves during that task. Yeah. So it's helpful to think about, you know, this second component of a compassion advisor, who would be those people that you would maybe piecemeal together and what would be the qualities and maybe people that you've experienced like a kindergarten teacher. I remember my kindergarten teacher pulling me up on my, on her lap and reading, um, frog and toad together. Mm, I love frog and toad. Yeah. The (laughs) warmth of her body and the simple story of frog and toad. And that feeling is, is like embedded in my memory system as a soothing, space and that we can we can generate that so the the imagery and the words that we generate in our mind have downstream biological effects on our bodies and it's not just external things that impact us but also internally and that we can generate that first with the soothing rhythm breathing and then the second piece of a compassionate advisor third practice that I want to talk about is one that has been around for a long time, which is a loving kindness practice or what's called meta. And meta is a poly word uh, that means friendliness or benevolence or goodwill. Mm-hmm. And meta meditation has been around since about the first century BC and has continued to be practiced in uh, some uh, sects of, of Bo- uh, Buddhist print. Um, Buddhist meditation. And what it involves is bringing a loving kindness to yourself um, and then bringing loving kindness to others, starting with maybe somebody that you love, sending loving kindness to a neutral person, sending loving kindness to someone that you have more difficulty with, and then sending loving kindness to the entire planet. Mm -hmm. 
the way that meta is often practiced is having is through a visual imagery of that person, either yourself or the other person you're sending the loving kindness to. And then also with some mantras or statements that you repeat. And I was first introduced personally to meta when I had a pretty significant loss about five years ago. And I was uh, in a pretty bad place. And it was soon after this loss, just a couple of days after this loss. And someone came, a very good friend of mine came to my house and she had also um, lost someone dear to her. And she gave me this note card and written on the note card was, may you be kind to yourself. May you be healthy. May you be at peace. May you know that you are loved. May you be gentle with yourself. A whole series of statements of meta. Mm-hmm. And she said, this is, this has been really helpful to me. And I want to give this to you, mm-hmm. say it to yourself. And that's all, that's all that she gave. She just said, say it to yourself and pull it up at night when you can't sleep. Mm-hmm. And I still have it in my uh, bedside table, the drawer right by my bedside table. And I love, I mean, I've memorized a lot of them now, but I love just opening up that drawer and knowing that that card is mm-hmm. there. It's something that I've shared. Mm-hmm. So some of the meta meditations are, we usually choose just a few, like one, two, you know, three statements, but I've collected a whole series of them over time. And oftentimes with clients, what I'll do is I'll do a meditation, a very simple one. Um, may I be one with myself, may I be free from suffering, may I be at peace. And we'll just repeat that to ourselves silently and then maybe choose someone they love and then maybe choose someone they have difficulty with. But then at the end, I usually will read a whole series of them. So some of the other ones that I have are, may I care for myself? May I accept myself as I am? May I find peace in this uncertain world? May I be strong? May I be patient? May I forgive myself? I'll read through the whole series and then allow the client to choose which ones really resonated with them. And then it's sort of like create your own meta, (laughs) create Mm -hmm. your own Mm -hmm. and pick your top three Mm -hmm. and then repeat those to yourself in the morning, repeat them at night or repeat them during difficult times. You can carry around your own little note card and it can be a little bit of a way of soothing yourself, being kind to yourself when difficulties arise or just in general. Mm hmm. I also practice this meditation with my kids at night. It's another one that we can, we're going to do a um, meditation. Or we're going to do a mindful kids podcast, but we can talk more about that. But it's also a great one to practice with kids. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Talk about how we do that. So the research on Meta is fascinating because they're starting because we have these monks that have been practicing this for thousands and thousands of hours. We can actually look at their brains and see if this type of meditation is helpful. And there's a researcher at the University of Wisconsin named Richard Davidson, and he's researched Tibetan Buddhist monks and found that this meditation on compassion can produce powerful changes in their brains. So he compared monks with 10,000 to 50,000 hours of practice in compassion and to novice meditators. And he put them in fMRI machines, which are machines that measure brain activity in certain areas. And he had them put little earbuds in and listen to negative sounds like a distressed woman or positive sounds like a baby laughing or, or just neutral sounds. And what he found is that compared to these novices, these Buddhist monks had increased area 
activity in a, two particular areas of the brain when listening to this to distressed sounds in particular. And the two areas of the brain are the insula, which is responsible for our interoceptive awareness, so our, our ability to know what's happening in our body, but also our empathy for others. The other area of the brain where he saw activation was in the temporal parietal juncture, which is associated with being able to perceive others' emotions. So when you can actually train your brain by doing this practice to be more receptive and sensitive and have more empathy. But it doesn't just take sort of thousands of hours of training. They've looked more also um, in a pilot study at what if we were just to do some interventions where shorter term can someone that doesn't have, you know, isn't a Buddhist monk change their brain as well in yeah. positive ways. And the, uh, Christopher Germer talks about this pilot study in his book where again, Richard Davison uh, trained a group of people and this time via just the internet to practice a meta meditation for 30 minutes a day for just two weeks. And he compared this uh, group of people that are practicing compassion-focused um, meditation to a group of people that were doing something called cognitive reappraisal, which is like cognitive restructuring from CBT, mm -hmm. just th thinking about things differently. And again, he put them in fMRIs and exposed them to images of human suffering while scanning their brains. And what he found was, again, the people that practiced this compassion meditation had increased activity in this insula area, and they had greater self-compassion after the two weeks of practicing. But what was particularly interesting is that after the intervention, he offered the participants to $165 honorarium and then said that they could donate it to their, um, to their cause, to a cause of their cho choosing. And what he found is that activation in the insula and in particular, this self-compassion practice predicted how much money that they would donate so not only did the self-compassion practice change their brain, not only did it make them more self-compassionate towards themselves, it also changed their behavior and being more generous and thinking about their giving money to others, mm -hmm. which I think is pretty cool mm -hmm. as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I really like these three practices as ones to try on and see if there's one that in particular would fit for you or that you would like to use. I think the most simple one is just the soothing rhythm breathing, mm -hmm. noticing when we're threat systems activated, how can I soothe my body in a different way by just slowing down, putting my hands somewhere on my body, being with myself. Mm -hmm. And then the second practice is maybe I could bring in a wise, compassionate advisor to be with me in this. And then the third practice is maybe I can tell myself some things and be kind to myself in my words and repeat those things and envision myself in a kind way and also send that out to others. And that that also increases our self-compassion as well. Great. So those are three practices to try at home. And I'm curious which one resonates with you or which one you'd be interested in looking into more for yourself. Um, I love the last one. And I think, um, I think, yeah, it might be really great to um, kind of come up with a list that maybe we could post for listeners to mm -hmm. um, to reference those things that we've talked about. Because, um, yeah, I think people do sometimes struggle for just the words. It's like they know maybe what feeling they're sort of aiming for, but it's hard when you're so locked into kind of critical ways or sort of matter-of-fact ways of talking to yourself. 
um, mm-hmm. to come up with these kinder words. And um, so I'd love to to try that and to share that with our listeners. Yeah. And I look forward to talking more about our, our practices with kids, how we can also translate this into how we parent, because I think that that is where we also could make a, a change, not only in our own lives, but also changing how we teach our kids to be more self-compassionate. Yeah. would yeah. be really nice. Yeah. That sounds great. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Thank you for listening to Psychologists Off the Clock. You can find us on Twitter, Facebook, and iTunes. You can also find us at www.offtheclockpsych.com. That's offtheclockpsych.com. Music by John Goo and Susie Stevens.